You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Ever-Merciful, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 26th of September 2022. The time is 7.09 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia live from the breakfast studios um, of Voice of Islam, um, located in South London. Uh, as is the norm here on The Breakfast Show, we always talk about... Um, uh, two topics and the topics uh, that we have chosen for you are very interesting but before I come to that let me give you the number to call in to uh, discuss or uh, to provide any inputs or feedback the number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. you can also tweet us at voice of Islam UK right so the first uh, topic that we will uh, be talking uh, talking about is related to inflation re- related to the cost of living increase and that is about how the parents are struggling to afford school uniforms um and we shall go into a discussion about that um if you know anything about that or if you've heard anything about that please do call us at 0208687 and then we shall talk about climate change and the countries that are facing environmental disasters as a result of climate change uh, and yet refuse to uh, take any uh, global cohesive action on it. Uh, we've seen the recent floods in Pakistan. We've seen so many other events over the years. So we shall uh, enter into a discussion on that very, very important topic about climate change that's from 8:15 onwards today and from 7:30 onwards once again uh, we shall be talking about inflation the cost of living with a special focus on how parents are actually struggling to afford even something um, as basic as school uniforms so those are the two topics and the number once again is 0208687 7878 right um Let's uh, uh, maybe quickly move on to the um, uh, to the news that uh, uh, that's appearing in the newspapers or the headlines that's appearing in the newspapers today. So the reactions from last week's mini budget continue to dominate uh, most of the papers this morning. Metro opts for the headline tax was accompanied by a photo depicting a face-off between Labour leader Sakir Starmer and Prime Minister Liz Truss. Sakir has vowed to reverse rupees, uh, uh, to reverse number 10's tax reductions for the highest earners but has welcomed the decision to cut the basic rate of tax from 20 to 19%. The report states that um, uh, following Friday's mini-budget, those on £1 million will save 55000 a year as the Conservatives try to increase spending and boost the economy. Also strike, striking a combative tone, The Guardian says Labour is seeking to draw new battle lines with the Prime Minister by vowing to reinstate the top rate of income tax. According to the report, the reversal could raise at least £2 billion for public spending, which could be invested into areas such as the NHS. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves tells The Guardian how, uh, how you can't build a strong economy without strong public services. Tory jitters as Quarteng pledges extra new cuts is the eyes 
front page headline. The paper says it has spoken to bench uh, to backbench conservative MPs who have relayed concerns from colleagues following the negative reaction from financial markets in the wake of last week's tax cuts for high earners. The paper reports MPs are giving the prime ministers the prime minister six months to make a policy work. It's not just polit- politicians who are angry at tax cuts for the wealthy, according to the front pages. The Daily Mirror carries an interview with former Manchester United footballer and Labour Party member Gary Neville, who has told the paper that giving high earners cash they do not need is immoral. Neville, who played alongside some of the biggest earners in the sport, tells the paper, I don't know anyone on more than £150,000 a year who will think it's the right thing to do. The former England defender is backing Sir Keir for Prime Minister and will appear at parties conference in Liverpool later today, the paper adds. Chancellor uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, is drawing up measures to tax cuts uh, to help families struggling with the cost of living crisis. That, according to Daily Mail, the paper says Mr. Kwarteng has launched a review of all tax rates ahead of a formal budget expected next year. The Mail quotes a Treasury source saying the Chancellor wants to make the tax simple, better for families and more pro-growth. But the Times describes the pain facing millions of public sector workers after the government abandoned plans for a new spending review. This means public sector workers will have real-term pay cuts before 2024, according to the paper, adding that schools and hospitals will be forced to make difficult decisions about the budgets. Separately, an image of Italian far-right leader Giorgia Meloni dominates the the picture slot as she looks poised to become the country's most right-wing prime minister since the war. Liz Truss, meanwhile, tells the Daily Express that she plans to build the most successful economy in the world. According to the paper, the Prime Minister wants to overhaul the tax system, cut red tape for small businesses and reform planning laws. Um, And finally, the Financial Times' lead story centres on Russia's war on Ukraine and nuclear threats made by Vladimir Putin. Capitals in the West are making contingency plans in case the Russian president moves to use nuclear weapons against Kiev, the paper reports. According to Western officials cited by the FT, private warnings have been sent to the Kremlin of possible consequences of such actions. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Let's take a quick break now. And when we come back, we shall delve a little bit more into what's happening um, in the world of news and newspapers today and what else is there that we can discuss. So more on the current news and current affairs right after this break. Allah 
أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Ashafi, the healer, is a divine attribute of God Almighty. Man must always remember that God is a source of all healing. And when prayer becomes a source of such miraculous healing through the will of God, a believer makes great progress in faith in the oneness of God and His dominion over creation. And he is reminded of his purpose in life, which is to continue to progress and advance in spirituality. In certain conditions, people afflicted with certain illnesses seek adequate medical care at advanced facilities yet they may or may not recover. Similarly, in underdeveloped countries, it has been observed that many afflicted with illnesses do not have the facilities or the resources to seek medical help. Yet they recover, as though miraculously through the power of prayers, this proves that it is indeed God, the healer, who has the power to grant healing and health. And a believer has firm faith on this attribute of Allah. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to a physician, You are only a soother to your patient. Its physician is he who has created him. People afflicted with illnesses should never think that visiting a certain doctor or a certain hospital is what will become the cause of their cure. But it is only God's grace and mercy that will provide them with relief. To complete health. The doctor only plays the role of a medium or providing treatment, which can only be beneficial if God so wills. And that is the reason why prayers are required at every step of the way. God has provided a cure for every illness, and many herbs and insects contain cures, even snake venom. One such example 
is that of the honeybee. And to describe the medical properties of honey, the Holy Quran has used the term, Therein is a cure for men. If we dwell upon the Quran, it was through revelation that an ordinary bee was instructed the way and the process to make honey, a cure for physical ailments. And in fact, all animals are guided in a similar way. In reality, revelation is essential for every activity. Therefore, how can man reject the value of this divine scheme? The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that a worldly man believes that his own efforts suffice him to achieve success in all his endeavors. But we must remember that without supplication there is no success. And what we achieve as a result of this supplication is also a type of revelation. Just like medicine alone cannot cure, it is important to follow the directions of usage and proper way of administering it. Similarly, the guidance is present, but people do not know how to follow it. The promised Messiah on whom be peace has said that many who have entered the Jamaat were those who indulged in all sorts of bad habits before their pledge of allegiance. Yet, after joining the Jamaat, this has brought about a great change in their habits and keep a great desire to cleanse themselves of all bad habits. These are the clear indications that today the only way to salvation is through the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Therefore, believers should rejoice that they are the heirs to the promises contained in the Holy Quran and the results of these promises will be in their favor. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is the mon- Monday, the 26th of September 2022. And we're talking about the, um, the newspaper's headlines and um, uh, the important news items of the day um mini budget um that has been announced by the government is of course on many minds this morning as well many many um many of us spent uh, a good part of our weekends talking discussing thinking about uh, the mini budget um Imam Shahzebatha, your yeah. thoughts on the on the mini budget? Well, I think it's it's double sided. Um, they have been huge tax savings um, and tax cuts, rather, from this 
announcement, which I think a lot of people didn't really expect, especially the stamp duty one. Um, mm. And we've seen, if anything, a U-turn on previous policies, a U-turn on the national insurance and a U-turn on the corporation tax. Before they were suggesting that they, by next year, corporation tax would increase 23%, right. and now it's back to 19%. Mm. Um, and the same with the national insurance. They've done a huge U-turn on that. Mm. But the more interesting or intriguing point is on stamp duty, <laughs> mm. which they raised the threshold to £250,000, upon which you pay 0% right. stamp yeah. duty. Before, it was 125000 Um And they've made, made it even easier for first-time buyers. 450 I think it is. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. around the £450,000 mark. Um, because I think they see the housing market somewhat stagnate um, with a rising interest rate. Uh, just, I think, last week, it was at... 2.25%. Hmm. Um, they've gone a step further than America. Um, they raised theirs by, I think, by 0.75%. So now the banks are offering loans of around 4.4%, hmm. thereabouts. Hmm. Um, so that's why I think to counterbalance that, because the property market being a huge factor in which, you know, one can assume the stability of a country's um, economy by just looking at the property sector. So... On the flip side, it's had, um, yes, these tax incentives have been good, but on the flip side, it's also um, shown record lows of the pound, which has been linked with the mini budget, which is a concern to say the least. The sterling dropped to $1.03 before regaining some ground to stand about 1.05 on Monday morning. Well, it's it's almost at parity. Exactly, it? yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, whereas in the past it's been at um, one twenty or, or there or thereabouts. One thirty, actually, um, is as recently as a couple of months ago. Mm. And uh, if you go back about eight nine years, it used to be close to one ninety. Yeah, well, there you so, are. It's so unbelievable. It's, uh, absolutely. Your thoughts on um, uh, on the tax cuts for the uh, higher higher rate earners? I think, I think to attract money. To attract the bankers to come back, and also not not simply on on the high earners, also on the um, the bonuses for the bankers. Right. Um, that's been reintroduced. That was initially cancelled out. That you know bankers will not have any further bonuses, or there's a limit to it. There was a cap, yeah. There was a cap. Um, so you think that's a good thing? I think, I think the way the economy is right now, I mm. think they need to draw an investment, especially with Brexit, especially with the way the things are, mm. um, and their hands somewhat forced. You know, it's counterproductive to bring in tax initiatives when the economy is on the low. Mm. Um, And I think now that they've brought in this relief, brought in some incentives, um, people will come back um, and, you know, spend a bit bit of money, invest a bit of money. Uh, I read somewhere um, over the weekend about the trickle-down theory. Um, So um, there was Mm. a bit of a joke, actually. So somebody asked, um, uh, a friend asked another friend, uh, how is um, uh, a, re- a reduction cap or the removal of cap on the banker's bonuses mm-hmm. uh, help with, with trickling down and help with, help the poor? And the response was, well, uh, happy banker is going to smile all day. And uh, when he smiles all day, uh, that's going to trickle down all the way to the <laughs> poor. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a funny one. I mean, yes, it's 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 what the Conservative Party really is. Uh, let's be frank, you know. Um, but having said that, I think these are I think record lows for you know, fifty or forty odd years uh, with regards to these tax cuts. So I think it's just showing where we are 
currently uh, in terms of the economy um, because there's a lot of worry with regards to the energy prices. So many companies have, you know, been liquidated because of the, you know, the um, the overall price, the wholesale price of the energy um, supply which they received. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, the way that things are, the interest rates are going up. Um, you know, borrowing's becoming more expensive, and we all know, you know, at your local supermarkets how things are on the rise too. So, so is it a time to to debate that topic to to support more of the the poor and the downtrodden rather than the super rich? You're correct, but unfortunately, the you know the realistic approach it really is that it's these affluent individuals who, at the end of the day, will bring about some form of a recovery within the economic sector. Yes, there should always be support for those people that are on you know, your lower salaries and what have you. Um, but to push, have that sort of economic drive, yes, they also say that the, the labour workforce is the economic drive, which you know, I completely agree with, hence you know, the strikes. Um, I think for the train strikes are happening very recently too now. Hmm. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I, I don't know what... Conservative Party is thinking, but I, I presume it's they're seeing that well, these individuals are you know affluent uh, people. They will bring in that interest. They will make you know London again the capital of, or rather the financial hub that it was um, in yesteryear. So you know only time will tell. Uh, mind you, there was an Australian uh, commentator who, upon the um, uh, funeral of Queen Elizabeth, couldn't even recognise our Prime Minister. Um, they were mm. walking. They, they said, "Oh, maybe it's part of part of the family." Or, what have you <laughs> um, but yeah right. I think that's just the way currently things are and mind you it's you know across the, our borders to in other parts of the world you know the rises in prices are happening everywhere but mm. I think we're feeling the burden a bit too much perhaps right okay thank you very much uh, for that wrap up of the mini budget um, Imam Shahzeb um, and on that note uh, Let's remind our listeners of the first topic uh, of the actually both topics that uh, we shall be talking about. So the first topic is about the cost of living um, and the impact of cost, uh, the cost of living on something as basic as um, buying school uniforms. So how parents are struggling to buy those uniforms is what we shall talk about um, imminently in the next um, starting in the next couple of minutes. And then the second topic, which we will start discussing around eight fifteen, is about uh, the is about climate change and the environmental disasters that are occurring in many countries as a result of climate change. Um, uh, and and yet we see very little action, global cohesive action being taken. Um, I think there's another COP uh, scheduled for uh, later in the year, uh, but. Um, uh, doubt if um, if the last COP really came up with any substantial uh, agreements uh, from the northern uh, country uh, northern and between the northern and, and the southern countries so to say so we shall talk in detail about that as well uh, yes so a quick break now um, the number to call is 020-868-7878 you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam and when we come back we shall talk about how parents are struggling to afford something as basic as school uniforms Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allah 
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Blessed are the prisoners who supplicate and do not get tired, for they shall one day be released. Blessed are the blind ones who persevere in their prayers, for one day they shall see. Blessed are those who are in the graves and seek the help of God through supplication, for one day they shall be taken out of their graves. Blessed are you who do not get tired in your prayers and your souls melt while you pray and your eyes shed tears and a fire is lit in your breasts and you are driven into dark chambers and desolated jungles seeking solitude and you are rendered restless and mad and unconscious of self for in the end you will become the recipients of grace. The God to whom we call is very benevolent, merciful, modest, true, faithful, and compassionate to those who are humble. You should also become faithful and supplicate with full sincerity and loyalty, so that he should have mercy on you. Withdraw from the tumult of the world, and do not make your faith a matter of personal contentions. Accept defeat for the sake of God, so that you might become heirs to great victories. God will show a miracle to those who pray and will bestow extraordinary favour upon those who beg. Prayer comes from God and returns to Him. Through prayer, God comes close to you as your life is close to you. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, and welcome back to the Breakfast Show here at the Voice of Islam. So, just before the break, we were just introducing some of the topics for today's program, and the first segment is about how parents are struggling to afford the school uniforms for their children. So, the gist of the story really is um, currently we are all, you know aware of the living uh, uh, cost crisis and parents 
are struggling to afford school uniforms. So the criteria for grants is strict and many, many parents are struggling to get these grants for help. On the other hand, schools are also facing increased costs or bills, hence have to cut costs elsewhere. So the question arises as to how are these rising living costs affecting children and schools? Um, and so we'll try and tackle you know, this question throughout today's um, segment. And we'll also, as we usually do, have um, guest callers on the line to help us understand this topic in particular today. So more support is needed for families to be able to afford school uniforms amid the cost of living crisis. And parents are um, saying that they are struggling to cope with school uniform costs amid the skyrocketing cost of living crisis. A shake-up in government guidance on school uniforms will mean schools are required to do a variety of things to help parents clothe their kids for less. The new rules will see schools made to keep expensive branded items to a minimum while encouraging parents to get the uniform items for their children from cheaper alternatives like supermarkets or set up their own second-hand clothing collectives. The Biven Foundation said the eligibility criteria for school uniform was too narrow and said more parents would need help. One parent said she had to fight for a grant and was angry some some families may be falling through the cracks. In Wales, families are eligible for grants if they fall into specific criteria, which is linked to existing eligibility for free school meals. Dyser from uh, Salzny, um, Flintshire, has two children, aged 7 and 13, who go to school just over the border in Chester. She said she had to fight for the uniform grant despite the school falling into the catchment area and said she would have missed out on £500 in support had she not appealed to the Welsh Government following a series of rejections. Charity welcomed Welsh Government action of higher grants for all age groups but with a requirement to be earning less than £7,400 a year if they receive universal credit, which was really, which was really quite low, and a, low, and a Welsh government spokeswoman said many families were struggling with the cost of living crisis, and it encouraged all schools to ensure policies were inclusive for all, with guidance due to be updated shortly. The change due to the Education Act of 2021 has been brought as a private members' bill by Labour MP Mike Amsbury and backed in, uh, in Parliament. And the new rules aimed at keeping school uniform costs down are set to take effect for the new school year 2022-3, which starts in a few days' time. Yet many parents say this is just not happening and sets and claiming as they aren't seeing any benefits yet. According to the UK's children charity, the Children's Society, the average spend on uniform for families with school children for each of their offspring is £337. The charity says that expensive school uniforms actually saw students being sent home back in 2014 for not having the right to kit. A Department for Education spokesperson said, We know schools and families are facing increased cost pressures more broadly, which is why we are providing over £37 billion to help households with the greatest need and supporting families through the Household Support Fund. 
They added that the new guidance will require schools to make uniform affordable to all and that some authorities provided grants to help and that any concerned parents should use a school's complaints process and contact the Department for Education via its standard complaints process if not satisfied. So that is the um, the long and short, really, of the current situation and the, the current struggles that many families are going through. Um, some even fighting for, you know, a grant so that they can, um, you know, purchase these uniforms and send their stu- children to school, you know, with the um, the correct clothing. Right. Okay. Let's um, uh, bring in Des Lynch, who is from the Wood Street Mission. Um, he is uh, Mancunian, born in North Manchester. This first started as a volunteer with the charity. He's now worked for the organization for just over 30 years and is currently the CEO of Wood Street Mission. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Morning. Uh, Des, um, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the Wood Street Mission before we really get into the topic at hand. Yeah, sure. Well, Wood Street Mission is a children's charity. Uh, it was set, in it, set up in 1869 by a guy called Alfred Alsop, who was a self-made businessman. He was a bookseller by trade. He was also quite um, a prolific author himself, wrote 14 or 15 books about the life and times of Victoria Manchester, and particularly the living conditions therein. Uh, he was a Methodist lay preacher, had seven children of his own, so he was a busy boy. And he took a look around at the area, uh, which we're still based in. We're just based just off Deansgate. And he looked at the area. And the Deansgate area of Manchester in 1869 was very different than the one that you see now. It was uh, one of the roughest, toughest places hmm. you could exist in. And uh, full of two up, two, out, two down, back-to-back dwellings with no sanitary facilities. Had some of the highest violent crime rates of anywhere in the country at the time. So he decided to do something about it and got together with some like-minded individuals. And from there on in, we've been serving the families of Manchester and Salford for 153 years. And does, how much does the average primary and secondary school uniform cost? Well, I know the ones that we purchased. We purchased direct from a <laughs> local supplier called David Luke. So we have quite unique... Uh, working relationship with this company where we take referrals for families who need school uniform we process the paperwork send it to David Luke they order pick from their warehouse and they deliver straight to families so there's no stigma to it or anything else like that it's just a courier van pulling up in front of the uh, in front of the house so the average uh, school uniform package that we provide is around about the 40 pounds mark and you know, how have you sort of seen the, the the change in need for all these families, you know, with the recent pandemic and the cost of living crisis? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the demand for school uniform has always been there. We've run this uh, project for a number of years now um, because we believe that education is the way to improve children's life chances, no matter what background they're from. Uh, so it's vitally important that children access school and in order to do that they have to look and feel like their peers uh, to boost confidence and for them to take a full part in education as full a part as they can so it's vitally important obviously there's an increasing squeeze on families' economics these days with what's going on in the country 
Um, and it is a difficult situation for everyone, really. And overall, you know, what's your opinion on school uniforms? You know, do they unnecessarily burden families? And, you know, should that requirement still be in place? Well, I understand the argument uh, for maybe um, getting rid of school uniforms, so to speak, but I, I wouldn't be in favour of that. And the reason I'm not in favour of that is because it is a leveller. If all children have access to school uniform and they look like each other, one, they feel part of everything, just like their peers. Whereas if you're asking children to come in on their, on their own, in their own clothing, some, quite frankly, may not be able to because they don't have access to clothing or that much clothing. And that's when they look different and feel different. Indeed, there are a number of schools now in Manchester and Salford that we deal with who we all remember like non-uniform days. They don't do that anymore for the very reason that some of those children, when they have non-uniform non days, come in on their school uniform and look out of, out of sync with everybody else because they haven't got anything else to wear that's suitable. So I think school uniform is vitally important. Do you think then the schools should be providing this or the government should subsidise or, or, or provide these? I think, well, I think it's big ask to ask schools out of their budgets to provide school uniform. What I would say and what I would ask schools is to be a little bit sensible about the school uniforms that you're asking children to wear. So if you go mainstream, say, and, uh, you know, without specific stripes on a jumper or things like that, that makes it far more accessible for families who are struggling a little bit to provide that school uniform. If you're going to put fancy piping on things and things like that, mm. then that does take it out of the realm of, of an awful lot of families and makes it more difficult for them. So it's just about being sensible, really. Right. And and do you think there should be any support then provided to the parents, maybe? So so if, if a, you know, an average uniform costs about £40, pounds, uh, let's say £40 pounds a year, um, and on average you have two kids going to school so that's about 80 uh, quid a year do you think that that is something that should be provided by the government in, in maybe another form to the parents as a, as a subsidy maybe or as an allowance I certainly think it's something that they should look at yeah uh, but there are so many things that they need to look at at the moment with mm. regards to struggling families um, but yeah that's certainly one of them I think the part problem is um, you know, it's a bit like um, busy times of the year, maybe at Christmas or whatever it may be, and you're asking families to, um, to pay out in one in one go, really, a large amount. If it was possible for them to spread it out the costs across the year, that may be beneficial to them as well. So, in in the pecking order, as you said, there there are lots of things, there are lots of um, uh, things to worry about at this uh, in these difficult times. There is, um, you know, this famous phrase about heating versus eating. Although the government is trying to subsidise a little bit, but um, the cost of li living has gone up um, substantially. Uh, where in the pecking order of things do you think um, the school uniforms come? Looking at an average family. Well, I think it's well, it's it's. It, it's difficult for families, isn't it? I mean, they have to find money to in order to purchase school uniforms in order for their children to access education because otherwise they get excluded. And it's not just about being excluded as well. As I come back to the original point, it's about children uh, needing to feel that they fit in, looking mm. and feeling like their peers. 
that's the vitally important part of it. If you want a society to grow and you want your children to access education in order then further down the line to get a better standard of uh, jobs or indeed set up their own businesses, then you have to put the money and the resources in when children are young and school uniform is a vital part of that to make them feel included. Right, okay. Um, <clears throat> going back to the earlier, um, uh, the intro that you made about um, the other things that uh, you do, what other priorities, which other areas are you really helping um, yeah, struggling families with in these times? We have five major projects uh, that we work on uh, throughout the year. So we have a family basics project um, that really does what it says on the tin. It provides basic items for families. Um, so more so like a food bank? No, we don't do food because there's so many food banks out there and projects. They do it far better than we can do it. Uh, we do other areas of work with families, which maybe other organisations aren't doing on the same scale. So the Family Basics Project provides basic items such as children's clothing, bedding, toiletries, that kind of thing. Right. Then we have the Smart Start Project, which is our school uniform project, which um, the height of it is in the summer, obviously as the, school, as the schools start to go back in September and children start to return. And that's everything from providing school uniform to coats for children because unfortunately children go to school without the correct coats on uh in the cold winter's day some will not go with a coat at all mm. um so we provide coats we provide accessories such as school bags stationery kits anything that helps a child go to school and more importantly keep them there once they're there and engage with it right okay. uh, and then we do a childhood experiences project where we work with local groups in order to um, take children away to and give them a different experience, to give them a different life experience. So we take them to places as varied as Jodrell Bank, to indoor skateboarding parks, mm -hmm. to outdoor climbing centres, anything like that, to, to broaden the horizons. Sure. And one of the most important things we do, which ties in with the SmartSat project really, is Books Forever. Right. And we deliver this straight into schools, with schools. So we go into schools in areas of uh, deprivation. Hmm. Um, and we set out uh, their school hall, a bit like a book fair. So we take 2,000 books, 2,500 books, depending on what it is, the size of the school. Each child comes in, each school year group comes in with their teachers and sports staff. Um, we talk to them about the importance of reading and literacy. And then uh, we, we enable them to choose five books each. So basically children go around with a book bag that we provided and they walk around choosing their books. And it's a great sight to see all these little kids with their red book bags over their shoulders carrying these books out at the end of the session. It's fantastic. And that, and that ties in with the, as I say, with the SmartSat project. And then the other project we do is a Christmas project, which has ran throughout Wood Street's history, really. Uh, because it originally was a Methodist organisation, it isn't now and hasn't been since mid-1960s. Uh, but last year we distributed over 14,000 toys and gifts um, to just over 4,000 children. So, um, and that's just about making a, a particular time of the year, special time of the year, special for all children, no matter what background they may come from. Right, excellent. How can our listeners support you? Our listeners can support us. They can uh, support any of our projects at any time of the year. So if there's something that's particularly appealing for them, say it's books rather than uniforms, or whether it's 
clothing rather than books, whatever it may be, they simply just need to go onto our website, mm-hmm. which is www.woodstreetmission.org.uk, and all our projects are on there. And it's, uh, it's, that gives you a way around it to see where you can support and how you can support us. Well, it is. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this morning, and um, hopefully, you can speak in the very near future. Um, Thanks very much for having us on. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Thank you. Bye bye. Des Lynch, Wood Street Mission. Um, Fantastic to hear his work. Yeah, the work that his organisation does for yeah. more than thirty years, you know, absolutely, and um, and and much needed support, and um, you know, from books to to school uniforms to so many other things, um, as something as basic as bedding as well. So yeah, absolutely, some some great work there. I think um, uh, something which uh, which ties in directly with uh, uh, with an Islamic mm. welfare state um, system as well. Something that I think. Uh, uh, we should talk about. Um, we are coming up to the um, eight o'clock news um, uh, in about uh, four minutes' time, uh, or five minutes' time. Uh, but um, uh, until then, uh, maybe um, we can talk a little bit about um, uh, you know this crisis that uh, that people are, are are facing at the moment. So we we started off talking about the uh, the mini budget um, in our in our news section. Um, and this topic, uh, you know, is very directly related to the uh, to the cost of living um, uh, crisis as well. And you mentioned rise in interest rates. So, how how do you think that is going to tie in with the um, uh, with the cost of living? Do you think that it's only going to get worse with uh, with interest rates rising, um, uh, or do you think that uh, there's there's some hope out there? I think this is sort of the, the main way that the Bank of England can really curb inflation with preventing people from you know borrowing too much or if they do borrow they don't have to pay a premium and to really save a bit um, which will then trickle down into the supermarkets whereby people won't be spending as much as they should be um, because now you know things are going up and up and up so then that will hopefully control the overall balance Um, so there's less people sort of you know running at the the markets and what have you um, that will stop the price hikes and sort of stagnate those, and then the economy will somehow, um, you know, sort of balance plateau. But what uh, about you know basic costs? What about uh, basic needs of people? Uh, things that they need for things that things that you I and everybody else, yeah. milk and sugar and um, and bread and whatnot. Yeah, well, um, you know, these things. You know, I think the catalyst in all of this has also been Brexit. Um, you know, to the state, we're still you know having a debate over the. Um, the Northern Ireland border with um, you know with the EU um, and sort of the, the various legislation that's attached to that um, and that's also that hasn't helped things um, you know the energy crisis it's its own issue the war in Ukraine there's a lot of elements um, to the reason why we are where we are even though everything was fine well more or less fine during the pandemic um, and you know, it's it's been an absolute shame because now winter's approaching um, and they're mm. saying that millions of households are effectively bracing for a catastrophe, mm. um, you know, because of the rising energy bills. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the experts are actually saying that people will, you know, be plunged into destitution mm. and they will, you know, unfortunately cause an increase in avoidable deaths uh, without urgent government support. So... Mm. 
I think pretty desperate it's, it is pretty that's hence you know the, the desperation of the government to bring in those major cuts um, the hand was somewhat forced and hmm. it's shown investors um, that there's a question mark over London hence the pound dropping which hasn't helped which has actually you know surprised many of you know, government officials um, and you know, I've got a very intri- interesting fact in front of me the Britain's energy industry regulator confirmed an 80% rise in the consumer price gap from October. So we are aware of these these um, increasing prices, but when they actually hit our accounts and when we actually have to pay out, then I think it will hit you know further, um, which will be alarming. You know they're saying gas and electricity bills will be around three and a half thousand pounds, and for those you know families that are struggling with. You know whether they clothe their children or provide food hmm. or keep their houses warm. You know they'll have a very tough decision um, come the end of the year. And this is the United Kingdom, mind you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I uh, that's uh, that's a good point. Absolutely, I think yeah, it's. Um, uh, I think it's. It, this is hitting everybody at all at all levels, and um, yeah, people are definitely struggling with uh, with the basic needs. Um, uh, those who are uh, going or planning to go on holiday will mm. be um, that you know the fall in value of the pound will hit them mm-hmm. very hard. Those who have liabilities in in dollars that will be hit, and and which reminds me actually, I I bought an iPad off of my uh, brother-in-law from uh, from New York uh, three or four months back, and I haven't paid him yet. <laughs> and I I was thinking only last night I should have paid him then. <laughs> yeah. When pound was at one thirty, yeah. and uh, and now it's at what one o five. So uh, yeah, I certainly uh, will need to dish out a lot more money. So mm. yeah, it's it's going to affect. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 affecting me. It's 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 much closer to to home than I thought, uh, as well. Even though I don't plan to take any any holiday anytime soon. Right. Okay. So we are uh, now coming uh, up to the eight o'clock news. Um, we will take a, a quick break for that. And when we come back, we will talk about uh, the Islamic system, the Islamic welfare state system. What 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 is the model uh, under the Islamic uh, uh, and Islamic welfare state? What can one expect from um, uh, from Islamic welfare state, given that there is um, a lot of um, uh, confusion, misunderstanding about that? I think that's something well, which would be worth talking about. So a lot more on that after this name. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. My peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the 26th of September 2022. The time is 8.08 a.m. and we are talking about inflation, the cost, the rising cost of living um, and what impact that is having on people on various things with specific reference to even something as basic as school uniforms. Before we went on to the break, we promised that when when we come back, we will talk about um, the Islamic, um, uh, the uh, the idea of an Islamic state, the uh, the responsibilities of an Islamic state, the life under an Islamic state. And if, if I can bring you in, Imam Shahzai Bhatta, mm. on that note, um, what what can one expect um, as as basic human rights or, or um, basic deliverables of an Islamic government? It's a very pertinent question um, because many people will perhaps not even consider or perceive Islam to be a religion mm. which supports those people who are in institution or you know, are struggling in general. Um, and in fact, what we find here is that Islam was and rather is the pioneer in establishing a, wave, a welfare society, in establishing the rights of those people that have been oppressed and are continuously oppressed. And repeatedly we find within the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty has instructed Muslims to help and aid those who are vulnerable or in need, irrespective of their uh, caste, creed or color. Furthermore, there are countless traditions and sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, with the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that illustrate how he spent his entire life serving mankind and striving to inculcate the same spirit of sympathy for others within his followers. And, you know, the Holy Prophet of Islam, the peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, was an everlasting source of mercy for mankind. And through his blessed words and deeds, he shone and illumined an everlasting light upon the magnificent teachings of Islam. And that's all we really need to focus on really um, to understand the principles and the whole society of Islam whereby we find that the founder of this religion you know practiced what he preached the Prophet Islam may the peace and of Allah be upon him taught that Allah the Almighty was most pleased by those who helped the poor who filled their empty stomachs and who arranged medical uh, treatment for them hence if a person claims to be a true Muslim it's his or her obligation and overriding duty to assist all those who are facing difficulties and to really strive to alleviate their distress and heartache. And his Messiah, his promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he stated, serving humanity is itself a form of worship of Allah. And separately he also stated, and I quote, that my state is such that if someone is in distress whilst I'm engaged in the obligatory prayers and I hear their grief, it is my ardent desire to break the prayer and to try and help that person and to shower them with as much as love, which as much as love as possible. The promises I also stated to fail to help a brother in their time of need or difficulty is utterly immoral and wrong. Furthermore, he stated that if a person did not have the material means to help someone struggling or facing difficulties, they should at the very least fervently pray that Allah the Almighty 
remove their problems. And he taught that sincere prayer required a soft and pure heart. And so Muslims had a duty to be sympathetic to the plight of others and to consider their trials as though they were their own. And, you know, we find throughout the lives of these noble people within the realm of Islam, they all preached the same message from the founder all the way down to the various people in between and to the Promised Messiah and you know, currently the, the Caliph, um, the leader of, of our community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed. All of these people have promoted the idea and belief of providing succor and relief for those people that are in difficulty, that are in um, facing various you know, financial problems. And on this note, you know, the Prophet also stated, treat all the creation of God with such deep love as though they are your close family members. Treat mankind in the same way that a mother treats her child. That is the way you should be, and not that you help someone only so that you can attain benefit later or take a favor in return. And so, you know, to wrap this sort of segment up, you know, it's prudent of us to certainly suggest and indeed declare that Islam from its very inception has been a religion which has always promoted the welfare society providing assistance and support for those people that require it quite frankly um, and what we see now unfortunately in various parts of the, the Muslim world is a situation or a, um, a development quite contrary to what Islam wants to and has maybe stress achieved in the past thank you very very much uh, for that uh, detailed um, uh, look detailed um, analysis of uh, the Islamic way of life uh, that brings us to in uh, uh, to conclude the first topic which was about um, the cost of living um, and the impact that has ha- is having on people. Uh, a quick break now, and when we come back, we will delve into the second topic of the day, which is about climate change and the impact that is having on the countries around the world, many countries around the world, including Pakistan, which has been devastated by floods recently. So let's talk about climate change and its impact. After this break, please do join us by calling us at 0208-687-787 and you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. How is Islam a universal religion? Since the creation of mankind, God has been sending his guidance to mankind through his prophets who conveyed his messages to their own people in every land and at every period of time. These messages were meant to be followed only by the people to whom they were sent and only for certain periods of time. There was no need to preserve these teachings because people were developing and they needed new guidance to match their new state. As mankind progressed mentally and intellectually, God sent to them the guidance that was corresponding to their needs. When mankind reached the ultimate level of intellect, the ultimate and perfect teachings were required to meet their needs. At the same time, the means of communication between people on earth became easy 
and there was no need to send different teachings to different people. One message was sufficient to convey the perfect and final teaching from God to mankind for all times to follow. These were the teachings of Islam that were contained in the Holy Quran, which was revealed to the seal of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show where we're talking about, where we're going to talk about the second topic of the day, which is about climate change and the result, the environmental disasters um, that uh, are a direct result of the climate change. So we've recently seen that countries such as Pakistan that only contribute 1% to the global greenhouse emissions are facing disasters. And uh, Pakistan is actually among the top 10 most vulnerable countries of the world. And uh, most of these top 10 countries actually contribute only 1% or close to 1% of the um, global greenhouse emissions. And yet they face uh, the brunt of the uh, effects. A third uh, of Pakistan is... um, uh, is currently flooded as it fa- as it faces its deadliest floods, which are compared um, uh, to the uh, 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 to deadly floods that actually occurred in um, uh, in the country um, uh, fifty or sixty years ago, and more than two thousand people are feared dead. The UN uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged the international community to come to Pakistan's aid as he launched a $160 million appeal to assist the tens of millions affected by the disaster, a fund that um, our Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of Pakistan um, confirmed will be put to good use. Since June, at least 1,000, um, over 2,000 people have been killed and roads, crops, homes and bridges have been washed away across the country. This year's monsoon is comparable to the devastating floods um, of um, uh, happened three or four decades ago. Uh, flooding has affected more than 33 million Pakistanis or one in seven, every seven people, according to officials. Sherry Rahman, who's Pakistan's climate change minister, described the situation as a climate-induced in- humanitarian disaster of epic proportions. Um. Imam Shahzeb, um, your quick thoughts uh, on this before we uh, bring in our first guest? It's unfathomable, really. Mm. You know, the life, um, that's, uh, so the loss of life that so many people have suffered, uh, families have afflicted, you know, livelihoods. And, you know, the question needs to be asked, you know, this happens year on year. Um, you know, these mons- monsoon rainfall, um isn't a sort of a new occurrence and the previous administration um, before this current one in Pakistan they had the idea and rather it was in the pipeworks that they were to develop these dams which would um, you know hold this water but unfortunately you know they were booted out and this new administration has come through um, and that quite hasn't been uh, that plan initially hasn't been carried out to its extent Nonetheless, um, you know, the international community has come to the aid of Pakistan and uh, continuously doing so. Uh, you, you find a current prime minister, you know, going to various parts of the world to ask for support uh, because so many people have, you know, sadly died um, 
the land, you know, which was cultivated upon has been ruined. Crops have been ruined, you know, um, so much uh, has been lost because of these floods. And it's, you know, it's a great shame um, because it's devastating to not only the environment, but the most vulnerable areas of those um, that experience frequent flooding and those that have not experienced flooding in many years, um, you know, they are left worse off. Um, but, you know, we hope and we certainly pray that things are turned around in Pakistan because these are, you know, the worst floods of the century. Um, and, you know, the annual monsoon, which, you know, these, these farmers and consumers rely on, was unusually heavy this year. So, you know, preparation was very much so um, simply not there. And you know, tons of water flooded the country. The Indus River overflowed its banks because the river flows almost directly through the narrow country, and therefore it's you know affected the entire country. So it's been an absolute uh, shame to see the level of destruction and devastation that has been widespread. Um, and you know the argument of climate change, you know, comes to the to the foyer once again. Um, but um. I'm pleased to introduce that we have been joined by uh, Namarta Chowdhury. A very good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Namarta Chowdhury is the Head of Public Engagement at 350.org. Nama has been working in the international third sector since the early 2000s, campaigning on a wide range of issues in the global north and south. Could you sort of start off by telling us more about your role and what 350 is? Certainly. Um, My role is as the head of the public engagement department for 350.org. We are a climate justice campaigning organization. We have 165 staff members working in 32 countries. And we work with over 500 grassroots campaigners in many different parts of the world, all together pushing for an end to new and existing fossil fuel projects and a just and equitable transition to renewable energy solutions instead. So really campaigning for climate justice. And my role in particular is about engaging with members of the public and seeing how we can channel their sense of power and agency into securing climate justice in different parts of the world. Fantastic. That takes me on to the, the global climate crisis, um, which has affected you know, ec- economically low countries unfairly and disproportionately um, what can be done to help these countries in the long term well to begin with i think it's important that we focus on the multiple factors that have affected why the impacts of the climate crisis are felt differently in different parts of the world right um for example i mean there's the reality of so many of economically low countries being the ones that are recovering from decades of being colonized and of having suffered unjust extractive practices In many of these countries, we're continuing to see an overloaded infrastructure that continues to support an unequal distribution of resources. There's a concentration of wealth and resulting power. There's there's an imbalance as society. So in the long term, work needs to be done to correct these imbalances and needs to be done at a global level. We need to see acknowledgement of the responsibility that sits with both rich and poor countries and the redistribution of resources in a more fair manner. It needs to be made more balanced across. 
Um, but before any of that, <laughs> I think first and foremost, we need to see a reduction of our dependence on fossil fuels because that's what's causing these problems. And in the long term, unless we address that, then no matter what part of the world we are in, with strong alternatives to fossil fuels now available and renewable energy solutions that need to be taken up at scale, until we do that, we are not going to be able to take on any of the subsequent you know, reparations work. So first, we need to cut our dependence on fossil fuels. And then we need to start seeing a financing of solutions um, with responsibility owned by wealthier countries that have contributed the greatest amount of carbon dioxide. And yeah, there's, there's other things that in the long term we need to see happening in <coughs> different parts of the world, including in rich countries. This unequal distribution is not particular to uh, developing economies. We see that even in Europe, there's an unequal distribution of wealth and power. So we need to see greater investment in rebuilding localized infrastructure. Um, you know, 350 has extreme, extensive experience in building people-powered movements around the planet to create lasting change. And we believe in equipping grassroots groups with the tools that they need to achieve victories in their own fights to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. Rather, you talked about the West. Um <clears throat> if you look here in in the UK, where I believe you are based as well, I am. Um, you will see that there is a lot of emphasis on um, on renewables. Um, uh, the government has set up uh, a fund for um, uh, for providing um, uh, support uh, to households for heat pumps. There's generally a lot of movement. Even if you looked at look at your LinkedIn profile, you will see that uh, you know a lot of uh, people are talking about climate change and the effects of climate change and um, mm. and and what to do about it. Certainly, a lot of awareness about it. Do you think the West is doing enough? <laughs> Enough is a very big concept, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, yes, there is a lot of noise about renewables and mm. about um, promoting these. But at the same time, there's talk, equally strong talk, about propping up the fossil fuel industry, continuing to give subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, continuing to talk about further exploration of gas, um, and including, once again, in, well, we are seeing a repeat of the patterns of colonization. We're seeing a push for gas in the global south. And the export of energy from there back to feed the appetites of Europe. And, you know, that that's one thing. The second is, yes, there's promotion of localized uh, renewable energy solutions. But how much is the uptake? And how are we supporting that uptake? How are we, uh, you know, working with the public here to actually see that translate to more solar panels, more wind farms, all of that happening, that's, there's still a huge gap between policy speak and actual implementation. And we need to see that change really urgently. Policy speak, uh, if, if we were to even um, uh, sort of focus on that for a few moments, do you mm -hmm. think the COP26 achieved uh, was a success? It was a mixed bag. For the first time in COP26, there was acknowledgement and naming of the fossil fuel industry, right, in, in the is, final text it, that is, came out. Is that enough, though? I mean, here no, we, not, I mean, does, not. Do, does, it, does, it not, does it not say uh, a lot about the state of things when we say that even the mention is, is an achievement? And, and you're right to say the fact that we are celebrating a mention mm. this far into the climate crisis mm. is ridiculous, isn't We're, it? Countries are drowning. We're clutching at straws. 
yes, wild countries are drowning. While, while some countries are overheating, other countries are facing drought, uh, yet others are, you know, being flooded. Often in the same country, you've got both happening at the same time. So it's ridiculous. We are indeed cu- clutching at straws. We are celebrating the small wins only because that gives hope to the movement to stay, to persist. And we are beginning to see the wheel turn finally. And we mustn't give up now. It's really important for us to now start thinking about, you know, what are the actual solutions? And with COP27 coming up this time in Egypt, it's being touted as the first African COP, which is actually not true because there have been COPs in Africa before. (laughs) But, you know, there's a a chance for us to turn the attention towards uh, justice once again and really start to see how rich countries can start to own their responsibility a bit more. And coming back to policy speak, yes, policy speak um, that goes on particularly at the COPs. We saw it at Glasgow. We saw we will probably see it again um, at Egypt. It sets the tone. It sets the ambition. It sets targets for different countries to, you know, change their domestic policies. But that's just one part of the puzzle. We need as I was saying earlier, we need very localized solutions. We need a change from the bottom up. We need to see this change at a global level and the real power sits with communities is what I firmly believe. So do you think there is enough awareness to create that change in the West uh, of the West responsibilities um, in terms of what we've talked about, in terms of the the lack of action at COPS, in terms of... um, the impact uh, that the um, the emissions generated by the West is having on, on the South? You know, we, we talk about this very often in what I can refer to as the climate circle, right? Or, or people like myself that are working with mm. uh, in other organizations like 350.org. There's, a, there's quite a few different organizations that are dedicated sure. to fighting the climate crisis. And in these climate circles, we talk very often about the bubble. We seem to exist in a bubble of concerned people. Outside of the bubble, there's much less awareness. You'll see people complaining about um, the weather. It still gets talked of as complaining about the weather rather than being attributed to climate change. People don't make that link. Even when they make the link, and in the last year, particularly with heat waves and droughts and, you know, that, that floods, sudden floods in Italy taking many lives, We've seen that hit hit home a lot harder than it has in previous years. So yes, people have started to attribute it to climate change rather than freak weather. But even so, they're not making that next leap. They're not making the connection with the fossil fuel industry. They're not making the link to carbon dioxide. And that's where the media comes in. I think a lot more needs to be done to fix blame uh, or responsibility, both actually. And and start to change the discourse so that we recognize the role that fossil fuels have played in bringing us here, and how quickly we need to focus on phasing them out so that we may focus on the ju- on the justice and reparations instead. So yeah, I think a lot more needs to be done. I'm drinking my morning coffee in a in a mug which could well have been uh, uh, made in uh, China. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you stand on the argument that uh, China is the is the factory of the world and the consumption? It's actually the consumption in the West, which is responsible for the emissions that actually are being made in a factory in China at this moment, which produces these mugs. 
this is a particularly problematic uh, framing if i may say so because mm-hmm. you know as long as we keep trying to affix blame at um, in in one sense it's it's a way to shift the attention away from the role that countries in the west in the global west need to need to own um and yes china does play a huge role of course it does but it, it's once again the infra- the um infrastructure that reminiscent of the colonization right the fact that chinese industry is supporting demand here hmm. we need to think about that as well we need to think about what are we doing to reduce demand how are we supporting more localized um development here for every mug that comes over from china i can promise you there are uh, ceramics shops here uh, locally made that are you know regretting that their products are now being priced out sure um and and that's part of the problem as well so there's this unequal distribution of resources that continues to be the problem and um just production at scale and and let's not even get into um overconsumption and the role that plays in worsening the climate crisis and other social causes as well so there's so much that needs changing but really at the heart of it and the most urgent one is fixing responsibility for climate change and frankly that's it's with that that rests with most nations it there's not a single nation that can wipe its hands of its responsibility right now and finally narata how hopeful are you um of the outcomes um at cop 27 <laughs> That, you know, you you sigh <laughs> explains it all. I sigh. I sigh because there's there's a few things that that go on in my head when when I get asked a question like this. On the one hand I'm tempted to say of course we have a lot of hope and you know mm-hmm. this, this, how can we not. On the other hand I feel but this is just policy. Yeah. The cop is but a moment in time. The effects of climate change, the the campaigning for justice, the determination to stay the course all of that carries on through the year so it it's like that moment in a long journey when you bend your head and look at a map right that map comes out of the cop each year it gets refreshed but the journey continues through the year and it's up to us to keep keep our attention on the whole journey not just on these moments when we're looking down at the map right uh, on that note namrata <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you so very much for joining us um uh, today it is it is a huge challenge absolutely and i think one that we uh, we need to make more and more people cognizant of more and more people in the west take responsibility of i think you and you you're right west and the east but uh, you know this is a crisis which which is made of the west made in the west and therefore yeah. i think the bulk of the responsibility has to be taken by us here in the west Um, and and thank you for the role you're playing in how you report on it right because we we need to see that change we need to see the media change how it reports on it as well so thank you for the role you're playing yeah, well, you're very welcome and we we are doing whatever little we can do to to help uh, the cause of justice as you said you know this is about yes. justice this is about uh, this is about fair play um thank you very much namrata thank you very much once again for joining us it was a pleasure speaking to you well, thank you so much have a good day ahead and you bye 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 So that was uh, Namrata Chaudhary who is the head of public engagement at 350.org talking to us about about the challenge mm. that is um that is climate change uh that is the challenge that is um is about even agreeing what to do about climate change because there's just so much to do 
Mm. You know, where do you start and where do you stop? Um, and, and where do you, st- uh, you know, more specifically, where, where parts of the world do you tackle? Um, you know, it's it's mind-boggling because it's just uh, the rate, the, the, the speed of things that are happening currently. You know, with the um, the factories being erected, left, right, and centre. You know, we haven't even touched upon you know, the developing world. Mm. Um, you know, whereby climate change is a conversation. You know, right down the pecking order. Right. You know, it doesn't even come probably in the first sort of top ten things of priority uh, because there's so many other issues there that are so much prevalent. Right. Um, on that note, let me go on to um, another interview. Uh, so we spoke earlier with uh, Teresa Anderson, who is a global lead on climate justice at ActionAid International, um, where we talked uh, about um, how floods have affected uh, the economically low-developed countries and uh, the general impact on climate change. Let's listen into what she had to say. Firstly, I would like to ask you... Um, if you can tell us more about your role and Action Aid's response to climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, m- my role is the global lead on climate justice for Action Aid International. Um, Action Aid is a federation with, a, of, um, with offices in 45 countries. Most of those offices are in Africa, Asia and Latin America. And, and we work with communities on, on the front lines of the climate crisis those who are experiencing the impacts of climate change on their daily lives, you know, for example, farming communities whose, whose crop yields are being affected by, by erratic weather patterns or, or people who are facing huge climate disasters such as droughts or floods. Um, so we also do a lot of humanitarian response to help people survive these crises and prepare for future crises. Um, so a lot of our working countries puts a particular focus on working with with women and marginalized people um, and making sure that women's mm. leadership is really encouraged and cultivated when, when we, in, you know, make interventions because because women are particularly affected by climate change, but they're, but they're also usually excluded from decision making. Um, and we really need to make sure that policy making decisions about climate change really include the voices of the people that are most affected. Um, so um, my role is is to coordinate and advise our work across the different countries we work in. And I also do a lot of work at UN climate negotiations as well to make sure that the global policy, you know, at the highest levels really has to reflect the needs and priorities of, of people and communities on the front lines of the climate crisis and, and making sure that policies put social justice at the core of climate action um, maybe I'll just mention also that um, coming up in November this year, there is a round, a new round of UN climate negotiations. Uh, there's a meeting called COP27. You may have heard of COP26, which happened in Glasgow last year. Well, COP27 is happening in Egypt this year. Um, and it's happening now, you know, after a year of a succession of really, really terrible climate disasters that have happened this year that show how the planet is getting hotter and hotter and our weather is getting more and more extreme and destructive, you know, like the floods that have happened in Pakistan in which, you know, a third of the country has been underwater um, and also the severe drought in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. Um, you know, 22 million people are currently at risk of starvation 
And there have been many other disasters which have also happened, uh, but not so much in the news this year in Afghanistan, in Bangladesh, Southern Africa. And, and all of these events are just highlighting that there's a really big gap, that there's no international system to help countries cope with the, the long-term aftermath of climate disasters. Um, and it's actually the poorest countries, the poorest communities, that those that have actually done the least to cause the climate crisis um, who are suffering the worst impacts. Um, and being pushed to breaking point. So there's huge pressure on the on the COP27 climate negotiations this November to agree to a new funding facility to address this kind of loss and damage caused by climate change. Thank you. And uh, how do you think can uh, floods affect an economically low-developed country? And how can a country like this prepare itself for a natural disaster? Yeah, well, I mean, severe flooding can be devastating to any community, right? Um, but I think for a low-income country, it, it can be totally disastrous. I mean, just starting with the loss of lives, you can't even put a number on the cost for, for people who've lost loved ones and, and, you know, the grief and tragedy that so many people are facing right now in, in Pakistan and, and Somalia. But but then there are, you know, all the economic costs too. Um, like agriculture is often the, the economic backbone of many countries and also the basis for their food security. So flooding means that, you know, farmers can lose their crops, their livestock, um, they can lose their everything for an entire season or, or maybe even longer. And, you know, if they lose an entire year's income and their source of food, they can really be um, in a very desperate situation. Um, we also know that women are the ones always most affected by climate impacts. In fact, um, studies show that I think it's 80% of people displaced by climate disasters are women, and that women are also several times more likely to die from climate disasters than men. So in addition to all of that, there's also the cost of, if you think about Pakistan right now, the immense cost of just clearing away all the mud, as well as you know the cost of rebuilding homes, schools, hospitals, roads, um, offices, uh, and then fixing water sources, fixing electricity cables, you know, it's it's just immense, um, really challenging and really expensive. And we know that um, when families then, you know, lose a year's income, they can end up selling their assets, you know, their livestock, their land, their equipment. Yeah. So then that they have no means to make an income the following year. Um, and then they may go into debt. Um, and often governments have to take on new loans to pay for all the cost of the repairs. Um, and so it's, um, it's really incredibly unfair when you consider these are the countries that haven't been the ones to cause the pollution, um, that's heating mm -hmm. the planet's atmosphere, um, and that we, that's causing the crazy weather patterns we see, we see today. Um, but when it comes to preparation, you know, to better cope with future disasters, um, there are lots of, you know, really great lessons from, I think it's worth looking at a country like Bangladesh. Um, Bangladesh has been really exposed to floods from, mm -hmm. from overflowing rivers coming down from the Himalaya, um, but also um, rising sea levels, cyclones, you know, they're getting pushed from all sides from climate change. So they're highly vulnerable, but they're also a world leader in adaptation and resilience. And so they do a lot of work on disaster risk reduction, 
protecting lives by, you know, preparing and training communities to respond quickly, you know, share information when a, when a river is flooding, everyone get to safety or, um, or know what to do when a cyclone is coming, making sure that women are included in that training and emergency response, um, and that actually strategies work for women's realities. And then there's also lots of adaptation strategies that, that countries can do, like strengthening infrastructure to withstand flooding or um, changing the way you do agriculture um, so that crops can cope better with, with the changing climate. So we would say like it's a really great idea to use um, agroecology approaches that help improve soil structure and crop diversity and reduce vulnerability to flooding and drought. But um, I would also say that there really are limits to adaptation, and I think the floods in Pakistan have have been so huge that you know even the best adaptation strategies have been overwhelmed. Um, and uh, you know, there's disasters like this. They you know they require really big, a huge um, humanitarian response. But then there's also the longer term question: what happens after? the immediate humanitarian response, how are countries supposed to do their recovery and rebuilding in the longer term and, you know, this can take years. So there, there also needs to be systems of social protection, cash transfers, helping communities avoid falling deeper into a poverty spiral. Um, and that, that's why we're, we're calling for an international funding facility to address loss and damage. Um, and that's why it's a key issue on the table at the at the UN climate negotiations this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, what can the public members do to help uh, with current floods and crisis, especially like in Pakistan or Bangladesh, as you mentioned? Mm. Well, um, I think right now, uh, considering the, the response in Pakistan is so urgent, um, in the UK, there's, there's a good opportunity here because the, the 14 main international agent, aid agencies, including ActionAid, also Islamic Relief and others, have formed a collective called the Disaster Emergency Committee. Um, and all of these organizations are collecting funds together, inviting the public to contribute. And this is all going to be channeled into um, into the humanitarian response in Pakistan. So you can go to the websites of ActionAid UK, of Islamic Relief, of the or the DEC, the DC, um, and make a donation there. Um, and you know that will help people. You know, provide them with the food, the shelter, mm -hmm. um, the safety, the cash. You know, to cope with the crisis right now and do a bit of the, the start the rebuilding effort as well. Um, but you know, in addition, I would say that that it's really important that the public um, get behind demand um, and really send a signal to, to key governments like the UK uh, to, to stop blocking and to start agreeing to a global system that helps communities cope in the aftermath of disasters, you know, and to cope with this loss and damage. Um, because we do need to bear in mind that this climate crisis, you know, is getting worse. Um, and we need to be prepared for what's to come. So we need to make sure we well we need to treat this this planetary crisis with with a global mindset and um, and I think just start to acknowledge that if we if we don't address this crisis together, we we will not address it at all. Certainly. And if you don't mind me asking, uh, what is the response from the public when you whenever you uh, go out and reach out to them? What kind of response do you get? Is it a good response or that many people I think, not. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say it's mixed, but um, there is a real shift happening in the public in the UK and around the world. People are starting to recognize that this is a global problem that requires a collective solution, that we need to act like we are in it together. Um, and and, and that, that story is really starting to get through to people. Um, I think there's a growing understanding that the international community needs to start treating the issue of climate change as a global and collective problem and that we can't leave individual countries to deal with the problem on their own. Um, and that actually it is the richest countries, the polluting countries, um, who have been the ones that caused the climate crisis and, and actually, but yet aren't really even suffering the worst of the impacts. It's the countries that have done the least to cause the problem that are suffering the worst impacts. Um, and so when you start to unpack that story, people, people start to, you know, a light goes off and people start to, to recognize that there's really a, a role for justice in, in global solutions here um, and that we need to make sure that global solutions are fair because if they're not fair, they're not going to work and everybody is going to suffer. Um, that's it for today. Thank you very much, um, Ms. Anderson, um, for your time and I hope you have a, a good day ahead as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Imam. Hope you have a great day too. That was uh, Theresa Anderson from Global Lead on Climate Justice and Action Aid International. Um, and it's fantastic to see and listen to her uh, opinions and thoughts on the overall circumstances that the various parts of the world are in. Um, moving on and forward, we shall now present um, the Islamic perspective, see what Islam has to say on the issue regarding climate change. Um, and, you know, we find various parts of the Holy Quran and indeed the sayings of the Holy Prophet Islam, the peace and blessing of Allah be upon him. And he instructed us to make sure that we look after the world that we inherit and leave it in a better state and receive it for those people that are to come after us. And therefore we find in the Holy Quran, chapter 3, verse 111, Allah the Almighty states, and I quote, You are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid what is evil and believe in Allah. And so therefore it really means that you you will continue to be the best as long as you are in a position to have the mentality of being service-minded and to promote good, promote social welfare. And if you do not do this, you have no right to boast about Islam's and indeed the Muslim Ummah's superiority. A society that is insensitive to other people's suffering and is not always inclined to serve the cause of humanity cannot be described as an Islamic society, regardless of how closely it adheres to other aspects of Islamic teachings. The founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizza Ghulam Ahmed, God, the army, peace and blessings of God be upon him, narrates a hadith, which is a saying of the Holy Prophet Islam, which highlights the importance of serving others. And I quote, It is narrated that on the day of judgment, Allah will say, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me water. I was sick and you did not meet or comfort me. And upon this, those being addressed will ask that, O oh, our Lord, when was it that you were hungry and we did not feed you? When was it that you were thirsty and we did not quench your thirst? 
And when was it that you were sick and we did not comfort you? In reply, Allah the Almighty would say that a person dear to me was suffering in this very way and you did not show any compassion or kindness to him. To show love to him would actually have been to show love to me. Similarly, to another community, Allah the Almighty would say, well done, you showed love and compassion to me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you quenched my thirst. The members of that community will then ask, O our Lord, when did we serve you in this way? We do not know ourselves. In response, Allah the Almighty will say, when you showed love and compassion to a person dear to me, you were actually manifesting your love for me. Thus, to love Allah, to, to love Allah's creation is something truly great and deeply appreciated by Allah the Almighty. On a separate occasion, the Prophet Islam stated, Allah the Almighty repeatedly commands that irrespective of religion or ethnicity, you should show love and compassion to all people. Allah commands us to feed the hungry, to free those shackled in bondage, to pay off the arrears of those mired in debt, shoulder the burdens of others and fulfill the rights of sincere love owed to mankind. And this is how we can really support those people that are, you know, currently suffering in Pakistan through the devastating floods that we've been talking about in today's program. His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he also implored the community upon delivering a keynote address at the International Conference of the Charity Humanity First. And he stated, Islam requires us to bandage the wounds of those in pain, to remove the anxieties of those who are distressed, and to show love and compassion without any desire for recognition or worldly reward. Thus, wherever any person is suffering or facing cruelty, it is your duty to be there to help and support and always try to increase your output and never become lazy or satisfied with your past achievements. Instead, your target should always be to elevate the standard of care provided by Humanity First through increased service and by helping as many people as possible. He further mentioned, and I quote, the conduct of mankind has played a direct role in causing the wars and conflicts of today. And it has also led to natural disasters that have taken place. Yet, at that same time, it is certainly not the case that every human who suffers in these disasters is at fault. Rather, it is part of nature. That when catastrophes and tragedies occur, even the innocent and blameless are affected. Hence, at all times, we should utilize our capabilities and skills to the very maximum in order to remove the hardships of such innocent people and to comfort those stricken by grief. We should be there to wipe away the tears of those who have been left bereft, heartbroken and vulnerable. We should be there to give hope to those who were previously hopeless. End of quote. So that's that's been the stance of you know, the Muslim world, in particular, when it comes to showing support or indeed incentivizing others to come forward and indeed you know show that level of compassion and and humanity 
when so much suffering is prevalent in different parts. Um, you know, here upon the issue of climate, you know, it affects you know, tens or millions of people around the world on a daily basis, where there are, whether it's, you know, shipbreakers in Bangladesh or, you know, those people who are currently serving rather suffering in the devastating floods in Pakistan. But, dearest listeners, that brings us to the end of today's programme. A huge vote of thanks for uh, my co-presenter, uh, Brother Daniel, to our dearest listeners for being with us all the way from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. And indeed, the production team, in our producer, Faisal Chima, researchers, Shanza Mubarak, Mahna Brahman, Amber Kamal and Sara Ahmed. The topics for tomorrow's breakfast show will be about Black History Month and the second segment, segment rather, it's been a very long morning, apologies. The second segment will be about Grandparents' Day, which is on the 2nd of October. But from all of us here, uh, thank you so much for being with us. And inshallah, we shall meet next Monday. Until then, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.